0: of people it's not very common to preach through a book like Ecclesiastes we tend to be much more reliant upon New Testament books we look more at the letters of Paul and they're much more they're much simpler and in a lot of ways we could take them and say they're much more positive and encouraging it's easy to see the beauty and the encouraging sides of these things where Ecclesiastes at times in chapters 1 and 2 it can come off as very dark or a little pessimistic or quite um too analytical. And for a lot of people, depending on our personalities, we can have a harder time with it. It's the same reason that I've said before, I've struggled at times with the Psalms because it's poetic language and it, it talks there's a lot of imagery there and it's a very beautiful, fanciful way that my brain just doesn't connect with or understand. I can say yes, there's beauty in there, I just don't really know how. Where a more artistic mind can embrace the Psalms in certain ways that I fail to necessarily grasp. But Ecclesiastes here is wisdom literature that sort of faces up to our fears by asking the hardest questions that anybody can ask. What is my meaning in this universe, or is there a meaning to the universe? Does God actually exist? And if so, who is he? And is there actually something after this life? Is there a life to come? All of these questions, these ultimate questions of life being encapsulated and wrapped up and kind of walked through in different ways here through Ecclesiastes. And we're going to kind of get back into seeing the preacher in verse 16 on down, kind of going back into where we were in chapters 1 and 2 as he again engages in those things that were under the sun. And keeping in mind, under the sun removes God from the equation. When he talks about those things that are under the sun, he's simply speaking of this perspective only, of observing what is on the earth and having this understanding that there is no God. And so as we go through and speak under the sun, let's keep that in mind as well. So starting in verse 16 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts, even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other." Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more, living, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun." Let us pray. Father, we ask this morning that our hearts and our eyes and our ears would be attentive to your word, that we would search the scriptures to see that these things be true as we study these things out, as we hear from your word. I I pray that it would be simply your spirit speaking that we would be receptive to what it is that you have conveyed here. and God, as we interact with these different viewpoints, this perspective that is under the sun, let us always remember the reality that there is something far past the sun, that there is an eternity that is in our perspective, that, that those who have believed upon the work of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that we absolutely take rest and comfort in the fact of the eternal God who has given an eternal promise that we have eternal redemption and salvation simply through your work and your work alone. And God, as we, as we look through this text and as we continue to examine these things, let us forever keep in mind who it is that you are and all that you've done and all that you've given to us through your word. Father, we love you and ask that you would bless this time. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. And so it's no surprise that after reading that text, as to why I introduced everything the way that I did, um, how many of you are super inspired and greatly encouraged and ready to just go do a lot of awesome things based upon that set of verses? It, it, it's, it's not the most um, promoting of action necessarily in certain ways. But as we see, the preacher continues to get at one very important aspect for each and every person that is reading this, and he's trying to draw attention to the mind, the way that we perceive the world, the way that we understand what happens around us. As we walk through in the Sunday school this morning, we live in accordance with those things that we value. Our actions will be brought out based upon what we value. And we said that if we value others, our actions will be very much more leaning upon service. If we only value ourselves, we'll be very self-centered, very selfish in the things that we do. And this morning, he gets at something that is incredibly important, and as I also had mentioned in the Sunday School, I've recently uh, been watching a lot of the different presidential debates. Now, I bring that up not as a political point, but to simply say many of the issues that are addressed throughout Ecclesiastes are bantered back and forth on both political parties in the public forum, day in and day out, in a 24-hour news cycle. And I simply sit back, and when I hear a lot of this conversation, I say, hey guys, read Ecclesiastes. I'm starting to see so much more the practical application of Ecclesiastes in each and every public um, forum of discourse. Those of you that are on Facebook, Lord bless you, I am, sort of. I have one, but you've been engaging, many of you, in different conversations. You see the way that people engage in public forums, on social media, like on Facebook, or on Twitter, or in any other platform. We see largely the perspective that is under the sun in all of these conversations, of a worldview and an idea that God does not, in fact, he cannot exist. And we see the reality of these worldviews being played out so much. And one of those themes that is so prevalently discussed, both in presidential debates, as talking points on either side, in all of these news channels, and in every conversation, largely even now in churches, is a conversation on justice. Whether or not something that is done is actually just, or if it's right. Would you all agree that this is a large conversation that exists today? Pretty much everything centers around justice, so much so that in order to gain points with a particular group of people, we always have to go back and nitpick different things, always blame this person here, blame this person, talk about something that happened 700 years ago, 2,000 years ago. We always talk about history of justice or injustice, whether it's just our country or globally. And one thing that I still have yet to really find talked about on any of the news channels when talking about injustice is something that happened almost 2,000 years ago. And what am I speaking of? The death of Christ. How awful it is when an innocent man today is even locked in prison, an innocent man that could be proven as innocent, but yet he continues to be punished for something and yet never a mention of the person of Christ, perfect in all of his ways, completely sinless, never harming another person, and yet was beaten, hung on a cross to die. That's an injustice that never seems to fit the narrative that is under the sun, because simply, well, it probably just didn't happen. Or we can't believe that this actually happened, and so we engage in arguments all completely forgetting the grossest form of injustice that man has ever carried out. And this is the heart, essentially, of where Solomon gets to in verse 16 as he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. He's saying, even in the places that are supposed to uphold justice, they're failing to do so. There's wickedness in those places. This is one of the largest cries of the Old Testament prophets. We see Amos, we see Jeremiah, we see Isaiah, we see Habakkuk crying out, God, you are a just God. How much longer will you allow this injustice to take place? How much longer? And how many of us have sat back and seen things and said, God, how much longer are you going to wait to return? This looks very bad. And we say, God, how much longer, to which I want to bring us back just for a brief moment to where we were last week and in the week before, as we saw that there's a time for everything, and God does everything that he does at the right time. That there's a reason the Lord has not returned yet. And do you trust in the timeliness of our Lord and Savior? And so he says that even the place that is supposed to uphold justice here under the sun is unjust. And we look down at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. We understand that there's always, throughout all of human history, there's the oppressors and the oppressed. We can look at any culture any location in the world, any time period, this has always been the case, that those who have power often tend to oppress those that do not have it. This is 98% of the public conversations that go on today. Anybody that has wealth, anybody that has any power, they're actively oppressing everyone else that is around them. And here Solomon draws attention to the very fact that the place of justice is no longer just, that there's in fact injustice there. He's highlighting man's inhumanity, essentially, towards one another. And he shows this frustration that not only is there injustice that is done, but that it goes unpunished. I think we could all agree that there are things that are unjust that do take place, and that there are injustices but that alone doesn't create much of our frustration. It's largely because we sit and we say, and they're going to get away with it. There's injustice that is carried out that is absolutely going to go unpunished. Amos himself preaches against those who oppress the poor and crush the needy. I mean, think about when you read any of these stories of a person who gets away with any crime, whatever it is. Everyone knows that they're guilty, even the the defendant is standing there. Everyone knows that they're guilty, but today, if you can have the right team of lawyers and have a good enough argument, you can get away with it. That our court system, our criminal systems, not unlike what the preacher is already explaining before we just start turning against our own courts and just say, ha, see, we're different, He very much understood the very place of justice carried out by man as they're supposed to be doing and called to be does not carry out justice perfectly. And as we understand biblically, in fact, we cannot do so perfectly. But he's frustrated because he sees an injustice and it's not enough that it's done, but he says this is going unpunished. And I think many of you can understand that frustration of seeing injustice done, yet no punishment for it. And so it builds our frustration, and we begin to get very perplexed by these things. And in verse 17, though, as we see a problem, as we always see in Scripture, we see solutions. We see verse 17. This is the answer to the problem of injustice. I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work this should be a wildly encouraging verse for every single believer here today that as we see injustice as we see oppression as we see these things that are carried out in very wicked manners that we sit back and instead of the grumbling complaining that I said I am prone to at times do you believe in verse 17 that there will be a there will be a time for justice do you believe that God to trust in God to make these things right. I remember growing up, still growing up, I remember growing up and thinking, man, being an adult's going to be awesome. I trust everybody. You, you trust every um, police officer. You trust every teacher. You trust every single judge. You trust every person, every elected elected official. Of course, you trust your president, your congressman. You trust these people. Because, of course, they're only going to uphold those things which are just and good and true. The issue that we have is that we are asking sinful, rebellious towards God, wicked men to carry out perfect justice. This is why even in your own homes, we struggle as fathers. I'll just talk to the men. Mothers, you guys are perfect. Okay, But as fathers... Are we perfect in the way that we deal with our children? Do we always act justly towards our children, towards our wife, towards those that are around us? I would say that we don't. And if you believe that you always do so perfectly, I would love to talk. <laughs> These are things that we should struggle with. We are to uphold those things that are just, and Solomon is understanding this. This is why he's greatly grieved, because they're supposed to uphold justice, and they're not. There's injustice, there's corruption, there's all of these things we know to be true. But in verse 17, he brings it back and says, but you know what? There will be a time for justice. And it's not going to be carried out by a politician or a judge or a police officer or a pastor or anybody else. Only the chief judge, Jesus Christ, God himself, is going to bring forth this time for justice. And we could sit back and we can see this, and hopefully all of you do. Again, when we see these truths, do you absolutely believe them to be true? Do you rest and do you believe and have confidence and trust that God will judge and do so rightly and perfectly and justly? though it may not be in the time that we want. Just as with every Old Testament prophet saying, Lord, I think it's been long enough. Why do you continue to let these things happen? Many of you have been in similar situations. The only trust and confidence that the Christian has is in the very fact that they are not the judge. We do not believe that we are the judge of all things. We only believe that God himself has the authority and the power and the wisdom to do so. But this doesn't mean that we, as, as Christians and as the church, that we do not stand against injustice. We are called to do what is right in the home, in our workplace, in our dealings with those that are in society. Later in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, it says that God will bring every deed to judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Depending on who you are this morning, that verse is either incredibly encouraging and it brings great hope or it should be one which brings a great amount of fear and trepidation and concern because God will absolutely judge every single deed, whether good or evil, and he will do so in a very just and righteous way. That God, because of his holiness, cannot look upon sin and simply say, eh, it's not that bad where no one will stand before God and be able to argue, well, at least I didn't do as much sinning as this guy. Or at least I didn't sin as much as my brother. Or, well, hey, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't know any better. These arguments may work with man, but God is too perfectly holy to overlook any sin. In verse 18, we simply see this question of, Of to why wait then? So why is it that we are here? I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see themselves as they are as beasts. And he continues this in 19 through 20. As he says in verse 20, all go into one place. All are of the dust and all turn to dust again. He's saying that man... Are beasts, men are beasts that we were created from out of the dust, and after we die, guess where our bodies are going to go? Right back to the dust. You remember months ago. Um, the illustration, as I mentioned, of Alexander the Great, and he has his friend there with him after this battle. They go, and he's looking intently over this pile, and Alexander comes up to him, and he says, What are you doing? And he tells Alexander the Great, I'm looking for the bones of your father, but I cannot distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. And we talked about how there is absolutely no distinction whether an earthly king or an earthly slave. There is zero distinction because all are going to die, all are going to wither whether you're Warren Buffett or you're me, you're going to die with nothing left in your pocket. But you also look culturally at how many people, how many civilizations thought, if we can bury these riches with this person, they will have those in the afterlife with them. Because that was the most important thing, wasn't it? If they can only take these things with them, how great that would be. They've worked so hard to accrue it. He's saying that man are simply beasts, that we're created from dust and we're going to return to dust because this is God's curse against sin and against death. And because of Adam's sin in the garden, that there is death, that all will experience death. And for each and every one of us, no matter how old or young, political views, interests, where we live, all of us are going to die one day. Our physical bodies will die. We will all breathe our very last breath, and our bodies will cease to continue. This, again, is the reality. And this is also why many don't engage much with the book of Ecclesiastes, because it confronts some of our greatest fears. We say, well, I have no fear in death. I'm a Christian. I just really hope I never die. This is often how we actually conduct and how the way in which we live and where we're so en- encapsulated by this fear, we insulate ourselves from anything that could ever harm us. So how does the Christian then answer these things? We simply do understand that there is more, that man, though apparently just beasts, we understand that man has been created in the very image of God, that man is eternal. Do you believe that you are an eternal Being, Do you live as if eternity is the reality? Because it is absolutely the reality. There is no person that will ever escape eternity. The question usually is asked, do you believe in eternity? Where the question should simply be, what do you think of your eternity? How do you think you will enjoy it? And as it goes through verse 18, we see that we are here in this time now. As we live, we demonstrate our character. We reveal. We see who we are in the universe, and we see who God absolutely is. Will we see God for who he is, and will we see us as we are? Verse 21, he asks the question that many have asked, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Simply, he's asking, will we live again? And who even knows? This morning we mentioned how few people, and it's alarmingly so to me, how few people have ever asked themselves that question of, what will happen after I die? Is there something more to life than just what I experience now? Because where Solomon was in chapter 1, so many people find themselves every day. Man, if this is all that there is, I don't really know that this is that great. If this is all that there is, then why even try anything? Right? I'm going to work hard, but I'm going to leave my money behind for somebody, and they're probably going to squander it because they might be a fool. I don't even know. There's no rest. There's no hope. There's no comfort. There's no peace. There's no joy. There are none of these good things that God has given as gifts to us, as he outlines earlier in chapter 3. And so his answer to, since we can't really know, Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? He says, if this is all that there is under the sun, then just be productive and enjoy your time while it's here. But here we understand something far, far different. In in verses 1 through 3, which we won't go through as much today, and we will a little more next week, we see that he is even carrying these things out to their conclusions, looking from under the sun, and we see that there's envy of those who are already dead. Remember who Solomon was, incredibly wealthy, incredible fame, all the possible comforts that you or I could ever have ever wanted in life, every imaginable comfort, and he says, I'm kind of envious of those who have already died but even more so envy of those who haven't yet lived because they haven't yet experienced the wickedness of the day. Because this is the question, this is the conclusion of those who say, there isn't a God, this is all that there is, and everywhere I look, it's purely wickedness. So what's the point then of even living? It would have been better if I had never been born. The old question of to be or not to be. Here he's saying under the sun, it's better to not even be. Because then you don't even know the wickedness that exists. And as we walk through that, and we'll get more into these first three verses of chapter 4 next week. And as I mentioned from the outset, these can be very pessimistic or seem very dark, not insanely encouraging. Keep in mind, he is outlining the position that is under the sun, that has taken God away from the equation entirely. It's created man's attempt to understand all that is around him, to understand a purpose, yet very much rejecting the very purpose that the Creator has given to you. Of course foolishness is going to come from out of that. That's the only thing that is going to make itself apparent. But there's a reason that that sounds very fatalistic and that it sounds very depressing. One, because it is. But two, because so many of us know this is not the reality. If this is the reality, then all that we have in life is despair. Does that get anybody here excited? Not a single person here says, you know what? Sign me up for 120 years of despair. That's what I want. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be the king of all despair. Never once has a kid ever said that. Hopefully. But this is the reality apart from God. Why? Because we, in and of ourselves, are naturally sinful. We joy in our sin. We glory in our shame. This is what all of Scripture tells us. We enjoy these things. And as we mentioned last week, it's no surprise that those who choose to live in the dark, that they can't see. We've taken away God and said, man, what is left? And it's just us, and it's just our sinfulness And it's all a fight to the top. How can we enjoy and win? But for so many of you, it's depressing and it's saddening because you see it and you say, you know, I remember when I used to think it would have been better if I just wasn't even alive because at least then I wouldn't have had to experience these things. At least then I wouldn't have known despair. At least then I wouldn't have known any wickedness. At least, you know, it would have been better if I was just not even born. Or it's better that I don't even live. And I can assure you from so many conversations with young people at the high school, this is a conversation that takes place routinely. But I'm also gonna say it's not just a natural thought process, but that it's actually largely encouraged by entertainment, by other individuals in that peer group, where the idea or topic of suicide is largely, it's glamorized, it's encouraged as an option. So what then does the Christian do? We look at it and we see the result. We see them saying, it's better that I don't even live. All I know is wickedness. I'm going to die and no one's even going to care about me and there's nothing afterwards. So if there's nothing that I should fear after this life, why wouldn't I? And what is the Christian left to do? The strategies say, well, you just just need to show love to that person and you just need to, to sit with them and point out the good things in their life. that's fantastic. But what if there aren't any good things in their life? In psalm this morning, in Psalm 33, the earth is filled with the goodness of what? Of God. Not every experience from every single person is good. We can't just rely upon these different strategies and convincing a person to just reshape the way that they think. And again, I'm going to keep going back to it. In the Sunday school, we went to the most basic fundamental answer is, The absolute reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Here, the preacher says, Where there's supposed to be justice and judgment, there's wickedness. Where there's supposed to be righteousness, I found iniquity. Everywhere that I looked, this is all that there is. The people that are supposed to stand for this no longer are actually doing so, they're failing in these attempts. And so he gets to the point to conclude that it would have been even better, that he had never lived. He's envious of those who do not currently exist or live in the world today. And this is a problem that encompasses so many. But the answer that we repeatedly see in Scripture is the one that God has given through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see perhaps one of the more... uh, most important passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Why is it that we cry out so strongly against injustice? Because every person longs for great justice. We want things to be just. Verse 23 of that passage makes very clear that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our actions are justly deserving of wrath and of punishment. Not temporal, not just a loss of a job or a loss of finances, but an eternity of punishment for those very sins which have separated us from God. And the question rather than what purpose is there in life, the question that should be on the mind of the preacher as he goes through this and as he continues to outline later on is this question of, since I am separated from God, how can I be made right? How can I be found as just? How can I be justified before a perfect and a holy God? How does a sinner get reconciled to God? Is it through work? Is it through intellect? Is it through study? Is it through any passionate pursuits that I can have? Absolutely not. And this verse continues to show it. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so the answer that every Christian has to offer to those who have this understanding, who reject God, who or questioning why it is that they should even live, why it is that they should even work, why it is that they should overcome any addictions that they're they're undergoing, we understand, we bring forth to them the very reality of the gospel, that you can be made justified freely by the grace of God through the perfect atoning work of Christ. Any answer outside of that is wholly insufficient for that person. It's temporal. And all of Scripture testifies to this very fact, and I love how Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, puts this, but being justified freely by his grace. How beautiful is the grace of God that you have been justified freely because of that very grace, because of what Christ and Christ alone has done, all because he has saved you. There is repentance and believe. Scripture says to repent and believe upon the work of Christ. Well, what about. No, no, no. Repent and believe upon the work of Christ. Right, but what do I have to do? Nothing. Repent and believe upon the work of Christ. How beautiful it is to know that God Himself condescends to us in the person of Christ to live the perfect, sinless life that we could have never lived so that we would be redeemed and reconciled back unto God, but that he himself set forth his own Son as the propitiation to suffer the very wrath of God that we were going to incur, because we will all stand before God. And the question is, have our sins been covered by the person and work of Christ, or are we now going to incur that wrath of God? He who knew no sin became sin for us. None of us here would say that a judge is acting justly to simply overlook any crime, any injustice that is done. In the same way, God does not look past sin. He does not look over sin. But has your sin been covered by the perfect blood of Christ? Or are you now the one that has to make payment for that sin? This is why the gospel is so important. This is why so many of you struggle as we see Ecclesiastes, and you say, there is something far more than this. Life is not just despair, it's joy in Christ. The person struggling with addictions, they need the joy that comes only through Christ. The poor husband, the poor teacher, the poor elected official, whoever the person is, apart from the gospel of Christ, there will be no lasting change. Do you truly believe that this morning? And is this the topic of conversation? Is this the emphasis in the way that we conduct and counsel one another? And have you received that promise that through the death and resurrection of Christ, that when we go down to dust, as all of us will, that you will rise again to glory just as Christ himself was raised? And do you rejoice in that hope? Do you rest? As we even heard in the special from Davy and Christina this morning, do you rest in that? An eternal rest in Christ, in Him alone. What a beautiful reality that that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reality of this unfolding plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation that we see, that we, for many of us, carry around with us day in and day out, a book that we have grown up with and that for many of us we have multiples of, but as we read through its pages, we read it not as a book written by man, but as that divine revelation that you yourself have given to mankind to show us not only who you are, but also we see who it is that we are, that our sin does separate us From you, but we praise you and we rejoice in the reality of the redemption that you have offered. That by the perfect life of your Son that you have sent forth as a propitiation for sins, that he took on that which we could never bear, that those who believe upon Jesus Christ will be saved, that those who do believe our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that when you look upon one of those who have believed upon Christ, when you look at those who have been redeemed, you, not only, you do not see us as dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive in Christ as we are placed in him, united with him in his death and in his resurrection. That we are adopted as sons, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that as you look upon us as sinful men, you see us as your son. You see us as with the perfect righteousness of Christ, not because of our works or because of our efforts, but simply out of the beauty of the free grace. God, we praise you so much for this grace this morning. And as we all have the understanding that it's from dust that we came into dust that we will return, there are maybe some this morning that that are going to stand before you without the, the security, without the rest, without the trust, without the confidence of salvation, without the, the understanding of having been redeemed. And we understand that those who have not believed upon the work of Christ, that it will stand before you as the just judge and in justly receiving the punishment that is deserved, which is eternal death and separation from you. But God, we thank you that you have not stayed silent, that you have offered your word to us, and that this morning we have seen clearly the reality that those who repent and believe have been forgiven of sins, and that you are faithful and just to forgive those who ask for it, that those who have believed upon your name and your name alone are saved. Lord, I ask that your spirit continue to work here in this time and continue to work even as we go. You would bless our fellowship and that if there are any among us that have questions or or concerns or a lack in understanding of things, I pray that you would encourage them and, and instill within them a heart to go and to find answers, to seek not only others that may be around, but also to diligently seek in your word to see that these things are true. God, we praise you for all these things this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.